0: We can do about the collective stupidity of government, other than figure out how to exploit it. This. Is an economy of one your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy? The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self interest. Liberty is not given, it must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, and your free market voice of the U.S. This is our- our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, an economyofone.com, an com, as is our Facebook. An Economy of One on Facebook. You sick of politics yet? You sick of it? Um, I, I, don't, I don't ever remember being this sick of it before. It's been annoying. In the past just from sheer volume of input from candidates but I've never never reached the point where I just refuse to listen to anything anymore we had second debate this last week got another one coming up a little later this week didn't watch the last two not gonna watch the third one I just I'm just sick of it it's just nauseating And sadly, (laughs) I saw some, I read somewhere, someone referencing the presidential campaign of 2020. Holy cow! We're not even done with 2016 yet, and we're thinking about 2020. So, uh, I don't know. But I do read a lot of the aftermath of the debate, and I wanted to touch on a few things. Uh, Oh yeah, coming up a little bit later, Larry Reed He's the president of the Foundation for Economic Education, uh, is going to be joining me. So you want to hang around for that. Larry Reed from uh, Foundation for Economic Education be coming up in a little bit. Anyway, you know, both uh, leading presidential candidates are talking about trade barriers. Now, they're not saying that, but they're saying they're against the Trans-Pacific Partnership. They're against uh, NAFTA. Uh, that's been on the books for a long time. And it, it just reminded me, I had to step back and think about mercantilist protections. And that's really what we're talking about is mercantilism. And this, this thought process of economics revolves around the concept, the, the belief that wealth is fixed. That wealth is fixed, there, there's a limited size pie out there economically, and we have to protect our pie. And by putting up trade barriers, by using tariffs, we're protecting our workers, we're protecting our economy. When in reality, we're just doing the opposite the economy is not fixed, but the politicians, And uh, some of the economists, many of the professors that that are teaching out there say that it is. Or at least their policies and statements revolve around the belief that the pie is fixed. If I'm richer than you, then that's unfair. That's unfair. And obviously, I took it from you. And uh, neither one of us are smart enough. So the government takes my money and my property and redistributes it as they see fit this is this is clearly a mercantilist attitude now the belief that american workers are out of work or can't successfully compete on the world market without protection because our wages are too high our standard of living is too high illustrates that these people don't know fundamental economics American workers have high wages because American workers have high productivity Chinese workers have low wages because Chinese workers have low productivity now the reason for this is many one of it is our infrastructure very easy to transport goods from point A to point B In America and China not so much they do not have the infrastructure they don't have the road system that we do they don't have the the uh, railroads the trucking all that kind of stuff that we do but the American capital or the American workers capital the human capital is what's really important now what makes an American worker have high wages part of it is productivity but productivity comes from specialization so American workers have greater specialization and the more specialized you are the more you can demand take the thought of physicians a family practice physician generally produces less and is less valuable than a specialist like a a gastroenterologist so, that gastroenterologist will earn more per hour than a family practice physician. A doctor that works on pediatric gastroenterologists will make more still. The more specialized you are, the more you can demand. The more open an economy is, especially to global trade, the more specialized the workers in that economy become. So the the fact that American workers make more is based on labor specialization and greater productivity. Now, I'll throw a personal wrench in the gears, if you will, no pun intended that i think american workers are not only more specialized and produce more have greater productivity but i think the quality of the work that they do is greater if you reduce a country's exposure to the global economy you create you create a problem it, it may raise the average wages in that economy, but it will um, lower the specialization. So, if we build up border uh, 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 trade barriers around our economy, you're going to lower the specialization and lower the productivity of american workers so in the past for example american workers made machines that made steel and they made the steel today they make the machines and somebody else makes the steel you look at iPhones our people designed that engineered it figured it all out then you ship out the labor to less specialized Low productivity economies like China to have them made. Both candidates are talking about trade barriers, higher tariffs. They don't they don't promote free trade out there, and they don't understand that if we put trade barriers up, other countries are going to put trade barriers up. It's going to create less demand for our products globally. And ultimately, the price of everything goes up. There's a reason that things are as cheap as they are in this country price-wise. And that's because of the world trade that we do have. We're able to tap in to lower prices. Productivity workers lower specialization by having trade agreements. Now, once again, I'm all in favor of buying American. And I don't mind if it costs me a little more. But the reason I buy American is not because I don't believe in free trade globally. The reason I buy American is I truly believe that things made in America are generally, generally a higher quality of product than what's made anywhere else in the world. I don't like buying Chinese made products. I don't think they hold up as well. And when they do break down, you can't get parts because things are so cheap price-wise, coming out of some of these low productivity, low specialization economies, that the quality isn't there and it's not worth fixing. It's not worth getting parts for it and fixing things. And I like fixing things. I, I, I had a refrigerator, have a refrigerator, still have it, that the ice maker broke. And the guy repairing it said, Oh, can't get an ice maker for this, you gotta throw it away and buy a new one. Well, there's nothing wrong with the freezer or the fridge. So I went on the internet, looked all over, found an ice maker, put it in myself, and I'm still using it twenty-five years later. So the mercantilist attitude is what both leading candidates are promoting right now. And it's not going to do into the economy what they think it's going to do, it may get them votes. The next thing I want to talk about in the same line is both candidates are promoting minimum wage. So we'll talk about minimum wage next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Once again, I'm sick of politics and I apologize, but uh, I I do want to talk about policy a little bit. And both leading candidates are talking about increasing the minimum wage. Now, we've spent a lot of time talking about this in the past. And uh, everybody knows uh, that knows anything, uh, knows that it will unemploy people. There's a few people who will make more money that will get a raise, but there will be fewer people employed. And both candidates um want to raise the minimum wage. And if you if you think about it in a little bit different sense, rather than wages, what if uh we had a truly evil uh ruler? Um not saying we do, I'm just saying, um And they wanted to, this ruler wanted to uh, make poor people suffer even more. So he decides to raise the price of bread so high that most poor people won't be able to buy any. They'll go without and they'll starve to death. Now this is a a variation on a story I picked up off the Foundation for Economic Freedom by Donald J. Broudreaux and he talks about uh, minimum wage in the the context of a loaf of bread now you can see and it's hard to to for for most people they don't relate labor or wages to a product because people are involved and we, we gotta be humane. We gotta be uh, sensitive and compassionate and all that kind of stuff. Whereas with a loaf of bread, you know, it, it doesn't draw a lot of compassion in people. It's a loaf of bread, very common in today's world, but putting a minimum price on a loaf of bread is the same as putting a minimum price on labor the baker who wants to sell his bread now has to have a uh, minimum price for that. So he's going to sell less, and he's going to use less. And the people supplying him will get less. So the farmers, everybody else that supply will not be able to buy the bread, they won't be able to trade for the bread because their products need to go up in price. The the ripple effect through the economy is what these people don't understand. That there's a reason that people earn less wages than other people. And that is they have less skills They provide less value for the employer if you want to earn more money you have to create more value and that means skills experience raising the minimum wage prevents a certain segment of society from gaining any experience I'm gonna date myself a little bit here but my first paying job I got paid a buck an hour dollar an hour and it was amazing to me when i went to a different job and got paid two bucks an hour but i gained valuable experience i gained a work ethic um i gained everything the wage was immaterial to what i gained so if the minimum wage is 15 bucks, we went from 10 10 to 15 off of quick, didn't we? Remember President Obama coming out and saying he went to 10 10 I don't know why that extra $0.10 cents made a difference, but uh, apparently it did. And several cities, Seattle, San Francisco, uh, of course, Washington, D.C., um, they all came out and had the wage much, much higher than that. And we've, we're starting to see the results in, in places like Seattle, where businesses are moving out they're moving out to where the wages are cheaper that $15 an hour is Seattle proper and uh, uh, people are are closing shop and moving some people are staying some people got a raise good for them but a lot of people got nothing the true minimum wage then is zero for until the government comes out and forces me as an employer to hire someone whether I need them or not regardless of the value they provide and pay them a minimum of fifteen dollars an hour the minimum wage will be zero now is the day coming when uh, I'll have to Eh, maybe you know one of the candidates is uh, putting out there that she would like incentives for corporations to hire people and hire apprentices. Now that's just a sharp step away from forcing companies to hire people and hire apprentices. I'm not saying that's certain 10, I'm not saying that's on the radar screen. I'm just saying, what's the next logical step from encouraging companies, paying companies from the government, paying them with our tax dollars, to hire people and hire apprentices. I could see it coming. Sadly, it's not unbelievable for me. That's the, the, the sad part of all of this. And both candidates are pushing in their agenda a higher minimum wage. And yet they both think this will help the economy. Coming up next, Larry Reed, president of the Foundation for Economic Education, will be joining me. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Lawrence W. Reed. He's the president of the Foundation for Economic Education. He's author of many books, including A Republic, if we can keep it. Excuse me, Professor, Challenging the Myths of Progressivism. And most recently, Real Heroes, Inspiring True Stories of Courage, Character, and Conviction. Larry, welcome to An Economy of One. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you, Gary. You know, I get on uh, FEE quite often. It's FEE.org, by the way, and read your stuff as well as, you know, Dan Mitchell and everybody else you have there. But most recently, I came across something uh, very appropriate in uh, Washington Times, you wrote, about socialism. And the title of your column was Why Not Socialism? Now, I'm not sure many people in, in America today really understand the difference between the political system socialism and capitalism given that both the major parties support socialistic principles in one form or another uh... you're an educator what what's what's your experience here
1: well socialism is not what it's often uh, sold as you know a lot of people think "Oh, socialism that means helping people that's compassion that means government's gonna do good things for people who who need help and so forth socialism is ultimately the use of force, the use of government or political force to uh, control the economy, to uh, confiscate and redistribute wealth, uh, to take charge of other people's lives. Now, it may be sometimes sold with high-sounding intentions. You know, we're going to do it all for you. It's Mm -hmm. it's for your own good, or these people need help. Uh, But it's uh, ultimately achieved only through the use of force, the concentration of power, the concentration of money in the hands of politics, politicians, and the bureaucracies that they create.
0: Now, it, you know, the people in power, I won't call them leaders because they don't lead very well, but uh, they, they tell us, they, they've told the country, they've been very blatant about that. Capitalism has been tried and it's failed. How do you, how do you respond to that today?
1: <laughs> well, in one of my uh, books, uh, Excuse Me, Professor, Challenging the... Uh, Myths of progressivism, I go through fifty two different myths like this and give the reader uh, the proper response, so I would recommend that if I might absolutely uh, and even in my newer book, uh, Real Heroes, I talk about a lot of people who have uh, confronted these uh, socialistic uh, myths uh, head on and and provided phenomenal responses both verbally and also in the way they conducted their lives. But I think you have to to say, wait a minute, uh, before you say capitalism has in some way failed. Give me some details. What are you talking about? And and much of the time they'll say, well, look at the financial crisis of 2008. Mm -hmm. And so immediately I say, wait a minute, that was not a crisis of capitalism. That was caused by uh, two important uh, uh, arms of government. First of all, the Federal Reserve which kept his interest rates historically low for a long period, uh, creating a bubble, pumping up the economy with cheap money. And then at the same time, you had Congress and two administrations or more jawboning the banks to make loans to people who could never pay them back. So stop blaming capitalism for something that was socialistic in its origin. And then when you start running down lists of other things they're talking about, almost always – what they think was a fault of capitalism was in fact the, the fault of some kind of government a bureaucracy or political intervention
0: you know one of my early economics professors way back when i went to to college you say that there's no end to the good do-gooders will do with other people's money that's right and, and th- there are days when i wonder if these people in power do they know what they're doing and know that it's evil and counterproductive or do they actually believe that they are doing good for the country and its people. I mean, are they evil or naive?
1: Well, to really answer that, uh, you'd have to go one by one, uh, person <laughs> to person, and, uh, and also somehow try to get into their heads. But I'm pretty sure that it's quite a mix, that there are people who gravitate to government Uh, who are evil before they get there, and that's one of the reasons they go to government, because that's where you can do the most evil. You can wield political power. You can take other people's money. You can get notoriety, get in the limelight, claim uh, claim that you're for the people, and then use their money uh, to accumulate more power and money for yourself. But then there are others who I'm sure are just uh, misguided, misinformed. Uh, They may even be in some cases, I'm sad to say, uh, just plain stupid and uh, just don't know what they don't know Mm -hmm. and think that what they're doing is good for people just because they express good intentions.
0: You know, so much of what we hear, especially recently in, in the presidential election, everybody's talking about rights and the attitude that everything and anything somebody wants has become a right that somebody else has to provide. And given that, in my thoughts, no rights exist without private property, how have we gotten to the point where desire becomes a right and something that the state should provide?
1: I think this, uh, there are a lot of things at fault here, but a, a big reason that we've gotten to that point is we've had more than a century now of, uh, of government schooling teaching uh, about uh, 88 to 90 percent of the American people year after year. And uh, it's not in the catechism of government teaching of government schools to really inform Students about the true nature of rights. So young people coming up through the schools hear from their teachers time and time again, and from their textbooks that if you want it bad enough, if 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 uh, you need it, uh, then it can easily be thought of as a right. And look down the list. Now you've got a right to education, a right Mm -hmm. to this, a right right to all kinds of things, which in most cases reduced to. You think you've got a right to use political force to take from some and give to you. That's not a right. That's just a claim. That's just a, a desire to have something that doesn't belong to you. Mm-hmm. Whereas a right, as our founders of this country saw them, a right is something you're actually born with. You have a right to be left alone. You have a right to seek an education. But you have no right to compel people to give you an education. And that's true of uh, health care, of, of any number of other things.
0: You know, I know the the Foundation for Economic Education, all the information you put out there, the courses, everything else. Are you seeing any hope out there? Are you seeing any optimism, or is the slippery slope getting, getting slipperier and more angled?
1: Well, you know, I'm an eternal optimist, I think, Gary, <laughs> so I see the glass half full all the time, although I – readily admit uh, we've got some incredibly uh, strong challenges that we're facing as a society right now but when I see the response of people to this uh, new book that uh, we've just released called uh, Real Heroes Mm -hmm. um, and I urge your your listeners to to get a copy uh, it's meant to inspire people with real stories of real people 40 of them uh, mostly from the past but a few from the uh, 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 present who have been examples of uh, strong character, who were advocates for liberty. When I see the reaction uh, that uh, that book is getting, I'm very heartened. People are, people are reading this and saying, wow, one person can make a difference. Character matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I, I'm, I'm optimistic, and I think this new tool, uh, the book, Real Heroes, is going to help us uh, recover our society.
0: We're speaking with Lawrence W. Reed. He's the president of the Foundation for Economic Education and author of the new book, Real Heroes, Inspiring True Stories of Courage, Character, and Conviction, published by ISI Books. You know, in, in talking about socialism, and on the show we talk about free market capitalism all the time, and uh, every time I see a socialistic program that ultimately fails. Take uh, the Affordable Care Act for example. That's that's really not going the the way everybody thought it would or the the people in power thought it would. I'm just reminded of the old story, the old cartoon I saw of a politician in the back of a limo with a flat tire yes. and, it, and he's sticking his head out the window yelling at the driver, "Throw some more money at it." Yeah, And he's throwing money at the flat tire, really doesn't fix it. <laughs> it, it isn't there their thought process, well, it was a good idea, my intentions were good, it was noble, it's the right thing to do, we just didn't put enough resources in it?
1: Oh, yeah, you see that all the time. I, I really do think, and you've, you've kind of touched on it here, that there's a, uh, a systemic flaw in the thought process of a dedicated socialist. They tend to be people who... Uh, Uh, feel that emotion trumps uh, logic and reason and facts and evidence that uh, good intentions are all that matter not outcomes they don't tend to be very rigorous in their application of logic if uh, they they try things and when they flop instead of uh, actually looking at the evidence they'll just move on to the next uh, experiment that will fail Uh, they don't learn from their mistakes Uh, it's a serious uh, disorder, I think, in the, in the way many of them think. Uh, but you can change. I mean, there are many examples of socialists who finally uh, came to see the light and realized that this top-down uh, you know, uh, system of, of, of running other people's lives for them just doesn't work.
0: You know, and one of the things you mentioned, I forget where I read it in your stuff, I don't know whether it was the uh, Washington Times article or not, but you said the phrase that I say often and that is people feel in those positions that the economic pie is fixed, that there's yeah. a limited amount of wealth out there. And if I have more than you, then that's unfair that I, I took it from you unjustly when in reality, the pie is ever expanding. And then didn't Adam Smith tell us that the, the proved to us that the pie is ever expanding?
1: He sure did, and he's a chapter, I'm happy to say, in uh, the book, uh, Real oh, Heroes. Excellent. Yeah, that's a fundamental flaw of socialists. They, uh, they have no theory of wealth creation. All they have are, are uh, silly uh, concepts of how to redistribute it after somebody else has gone to the trouble and the risk of creating it in the first place. Right. You Look at Venezuela. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just redistributing an ever-shrinking pie. They have no idea the socialist leadership there on how to create wealth in the first place
0: you know I was going to bring up Venezuela and we're kind of seeing that in real time the ultimate results of socialism could that be the United States future or uh, do we have time to be on a little bit different path than that
1: oh we certainly have time and uh, I we have a heritage in America that I think uh, given the right circumstances and the Renaissance of, of thinking uh, can can reassert itself and we can, we can avoid uh, the tragic path that Venezuela has taken, but I have to say, there's nothing that's so special about Americans that we won't suffer the same consequences if we continue to pursue the same policies mm-hmm. that they're, they're doing in uh, Venezuela. If you have government at the top saying, we're in charge of everything, we don't like private property, we're going to own it. We're going to redistribute wealth. We're going to penalize the producers in society. We're going to disincentivize entrepreneurship. Uh, no people can hold up under that, uh, and and uh, any society that is afflicted with those destructive policies and concepts is headed for the ash heap. There's no question.
0: Now that that being said, and and I don't want to keep picking on Venezuela, but they're kind of the poster child today. Is possibly is it very likely that they're next? next step in the evolution of the country is conflict is war i mean it uh, sure looks that way
1: to me if i had to guess i mean you can hope and pray that uh, there'll be such a change in thinking that they could have a peaceful transition to a free venezuela Uh, but right at the moment it looks as though the people at the top of the uh, socialist dictatorship there uh, does not want to change. They're double da- uh, uh, doubling down on all their uh, stupid and destructive policies. And that is putting Venezuela on a course, I think, for some some kind of uh, explosion.
0: It's an incredible to watch. I mean, we can look at history and say, well, it's different now and we're different. But this is in real time. It's, it's just south of here a little ways, and, and we're seeing it develop. So uh, we're speaking with Lawrence W. Reed, president of the Foundation for Economic education, author of the new book, Real Heroes, Inspiring True Stories of Courage, Character and Conviction. Uh, Larry, I, uh, my book is in the mail, apparently, on its way <laughs> to me. Uh, I read your A uh, Republic, If We Can Keep It. It was very interesting. You wrote that. Uh, forgive me, your co-author. I know he's from Hillsdale College. Kurt Folsom. Uh, yes. We've talked to him on the show a couple times before. Great guy. we got about a minute left. Tell us a little bit about the book.
1: Okay. I wrote the book, Real Heroes, because I wanted to inspire people. I wanted to lift their spirits. I wanted them to understand that one person can make a difference, and there are many people in history uh, who have. But in every case, the difference they were able to make for good stemmed directly from solid and strong character. Character matters. Mm -hmm. No society has ever risen uh, in the absence of strong character and become a free country. And no free country has ever kept its liberties if it lost its character. And I wanted to tell that story uh, basically through the real lives of real people. And that's why uh, the book covers 40 different people and is called Real
0: Heroes. Looking forward to that. Like I said, uh, your publisher told me it's in the mail to me. So uh, I make it a point of reading every book that has an author that I talk to. So I'm looking forward to reading through that. And I hope... As soon as I get through it, we can give you another call and talk about some of those real heroes. Absolutely. Love to, Gary, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm looking forward to it. We've been speaking with Lawrence W. Reed, president of Foundation for Economic Education, author of the most recent book, Real Heroes, Inspiring True Stories of Courage, Character, and Conviction. Larry, this has been a real treat for me. I want to thank you for your time and look forward to talking to you again soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Gary. Coming up next... Where do our rights come from? An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. One more thought on... uh presidential candidate talk out there we 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 hear almost every day about rights your right to free health care your right to an education, your right to paid medical leave, your right to a living wage everything becomes a right nowadays and I got to thinking about that because i'm a a constitutional kind of guy, and everything boils down for me to just one right really we only have one right and that right is property the fact that you are a being and you are conscious of being a being means you have that right it's a god-given right you're born with it a natural right every legitimate right can be reduced right down to private property every illegitimate right cannot so the Constitution it's an important point Constitution does not give us any rights the Constitution protects the rights we have do we have the right to free speech yes because the Constitution says so no because our speech is our property our body is our property our thoughts are our property my labor is my property So the Constitution doesn't give me the right to free speech. It protects my right of free speech. Second Amendment doesn't give me the right to bear arms. It protects my right to bear arms because arms protects my property. And I have a right to do that. Many people come out and say the First Amendment and free speech aren't absolute because it can be limited. And they always use the the age-old scenario of uh, uh, yelling fire in a crowded theater well yelling fire in a crowded theater has nothing to do with the limit on free speech it has to do with free speech infringing on the rights of others rights are never in conflict so you are violating rights you are on somebody else's property other people are there they paid money to be there to see whatever's on stage or movie and you are violating their rights rights only exist in the space that doesn't encroach on the rights of others so it's important to remember the constitution the bill of rights does not give us rights it protects our rights now i'm all in favor of putting out there and remembering and, and talking about our rights. But when somebody else's rights infringe on you, when your right to health care means that somebody puts a gun to my head and takes my property so that they can pay for your health care, that is not a right. If I voluntarily give my money, so you can have health care then I'm good I'm good I have made the choice but a gun to your head takes away liberty A gun to your head takes away choice if you have no choice you have no liberty and you have no property rights at all this country was founded on the right to private property To do with what you want, to say what you want, to protect that property. Everybody wants to take that away in the name of rights. So once again, the Constitution doesn't give us any rights. It simply protects our natural rights. Keep that in mind as you listen to these speeches and these candidates. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country.
1: The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC registered investment advisor.